Revelation chapter 2. So we're experimenting a little bit today as well. Uh, Brother Joe and I uh, set up the new camera, uh, and hopefully that's going to work for us as well. Uh, yesterday, some of uh, our folks tuned in, and they saw what I looked like up close, and I thought, man, alive, I need to lose some weight. But anyway, we'll leave that alone and uh, kind of go from there with it today. We're going to continue on our studies uh, in eschatology. We have notes that are in the back for anybody that wants uh, to get a copy of the notes. Uh, we're going to be looking at Pergama and Thyatira. Also in the announcement sheet, in the uh, back of the bulletin, you'll notice that I uh, also put a copy of the slides that we're going to be showing as well today, making sure that we have an understanding. Now, everything we're going to be looking at today is going to start uh, with uh, 3.14 all the way up to 1500 or 1517 A.D. And so this is a big chunk of area, but it's so important for us to be able to understand the things that are there for us. All right, let's go ahead and let's read beginning at verse 12. And it says, And to the angel of the church of Pergamum, Right, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan's seat dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast them they're them that hold to the doctrines of Balaam, who taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in, in, in this stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Let us pray. Father, again, we want to thank you for your blessings, and I pray that you will guide us now as we study your word together. Help us, dear Father, to be faithful unto you in all that is said and done, and may we rejoice in thy name. So guide and bless and keep us now, we pray, and watch over us and give good knowledge to the things which have been studied and the application that follows. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we start with Pergamum, uh, we're going to get to the slides in just a moment, but I want to give you a little bit of a detail that goes on. Now, what's interesting is, like I said, this book was written in 1973, and yet, as I read this book, and, I, and of course, every time I study, I find that I reread a lot of the materials that I've had in the past, a lot of the books that I have, some newer books, and the things that were believed that by Jack MacArthur back then, he said, these things are going to happen. And surprisingly, the things that he showed at that very moment were things that we see even to this day. So I want you to get this when we understand the overall aspect of what the Bible teaches us. Now, again, why do I hold to the book of Revelation as the opening scenario of showing that there are actually two things that, that give us a, the separation? We find the application for now, we find the application for the future, and we find the application for the past. 
So understand, there's no more Pergama church. But the message that was given to Pergama was just as influential and important as we see today. And the warning is, beware that these things happen. Now understand, this was not given to the world per se, but it was given only to the churches. It's amazing to me how many people will open up the Bible and not understanding anything that's in the Bible, try to define it without having, first of all, a relationship with Jesus Christ. First and foremost, John had such a defined time with the Lord. I mean, think about this. We start off in Revelation chapter 1 that I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That's important for us. We need to understand it wasn't the Lord's moment. It wasn't the Lord's hour. It was the Lord's day. I think a lot of times our churches are less powerful because we want to give just a little bit of our time, not the completion of our time to the Lord. I remember this many years ago that I was working, uh, you know, as a young engineer uh, up in Ohio, and uh, my boss came in, he goes, you can go to church in the morning, and he said, but I want you back here right, uh, right after church and get started back on this business. So I said, you know, I said, it's not the Lord's hour. It's not the Lord's four hours, it's the Lord's day. And I said, I want to be in church as much as possible on the Lord's day so that I might grow from it, so that I might learn from it. Now I understand this, we are a small group of people and you know, being a small congregation, we have made the decision how much we actually talk about the things of God during the day. But understand this, God holds us responsible that no matter what we do, we have the faithfulness that is there. But I want you to see this. Turn with me, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to look at the, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to go down to verse 2. And notice again what the Lord said regarding the division of the two-edged sword. Now, um, there's a reason I'm going to go there, and I want you to see this. Looking at verse 2, it says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised and shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, what is interesting is that when we see the direction that the Lord gives us, we see that we have this entirety for us to understand what God gives us. This is the power of God. This is the influence of God. He is set down and by faith, he is going to influence us with this. But let's go back and let's say one more thing. In Revelation, notice in verse 12, it says these words, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, this is chapter 2, verse 12, and to, the, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These things which he that hath the sharp two-edged sword. Now, what do we know about the sharp two-edged sword? It was, it was literally a sword. It was about as long as my, you know, from about the elbow up. But it would be sharp on both sides. It was designed to cut going in and designed to cut going out. They said with that sharp two-edged sword, it would literally cause more damage to an individual. So the reality is, is that it would maim, it would destroy, it would kill. But this was likened, and when we take the look at the Word of God, it was likened to a sharp two-edged sword. And over in the scripture it says that it was enough to divide asunder the, the spirit and the soul. You know, we, I've had so many people say, well, the spirit and the soul are the same thing. No, they're not. 
Uh, if, how many, I don't know how many of you all have ever listened to uh, T.P. Simmons and, you know, have his book on systematic theology. Well, T.P. Simmons was a dichotomist. And in the dichotomy, he said the soul and the spirit are the same. I'm a trichotomist. I believe that we are body, soul, and spirit. And so because of that, we a lot of times struggle, what is it meant by the soul? I believe that that's the character of the individual. I believe that's who we are, how we've been made up. And so when we find that separation, the spirit will literally cause us to have a greater understanding of the things of God. But watch this. The Lord knows everything about Now I want you to see this in verse 13. I know by Now I know what he said also to the Ephesian church. I know how that you are active. I know that you're busy. I know that you're spreading the gospel. But even thinking about this, he goes, I know thy works and where thou dwellest even in Satan's seat. Now here's the thing that was interesting. Pergamum was a crossroads. And literally in Pergamum they had all kinds of idolatry. They had all kinds of wickedness. They had all kinds of temples. And reality is, is that when, when the little church that was established in the Pergamum had begun, it was one to where that it had an uphill battle. Because you see, while you lived at Pergamum, if you did not follow after their law, particularly, they would starve you to death. Can you imagine having a store, and you're dependent upon the livelihood of that store, and you're not allowed to have any customers, you're not allowed to have anything else that goes on in that store, and that's what's going to occur in this place. And so when we talk about the denial, when we talk about the challenges, when we talk about the difficulties, that is what's going on with us. But now I want you to also see this. It was in a place to where you even had martyrdom that occurred. Look what it says. Uh, notice it says, And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr. Now we talked about last week Polycarp, and how that he was martyred, you know, in that little area that we talked about in, in uh, Smyrna. But here in Pergamum, Pergamum was another person that was martyred, and that was Antipas. When Antipas was probably allowed to be mentioned in this area, was to let John remember what all he's had to endure. Antipas was a follower or had come to, into faith because of the Apostle John. And so because of that, this relationship was now going to allow to be nurtured and everything. And can you imagine the difficulty? Now, whether John knew about Antipas' martyrdom at this point, or if the Lord is informing John that Antipas had died you know, during this time, and this is the first he's heard about it, we don't know. But the reality is, he was not a Catholic saint. He was just a, a, a dear believer that held on to the truth and would not sacrifice. See, this is the problem we have. Many times, and, and I see this over and over again, especially in Baptist churches, where people want to turn around and say, oh, well, the Catholics did that, the Catholics did that. Let me just tell you this. Make sure our clean before we start looking at other, back, other people's backyards. What do I mean by that? 
there's just as much fornication goes on in Baptist churches as we see going on in Catholic churches. We have just as much incest as going on in Baptist churches as we do in Catholic churches. I remember that I had a church that asked me to come and be their pastor, and they didn't let me know everything. Finally, after I became the pastor, it was stated to me that in this church, they had to dismiss a member because he was having wrongful relationships with certain women in, our, in the church that I was now pastoring. And that man came to me, and he was infuriated. He was angry that he had been dismissed from this church, that he had been disciplined out of this church. And I said, are you guilty of what you've been accused of? And that man spun on his heels and left. Never did answer the question. Do you know that if I am going to be the man of God that I should be standing in this pulpit, I cannot come to you and say that I am lily white when I have sins of my, of my own to deal with. And really, the reality is, is that so many people want a lily white congregation and they expect everything to be perfect, but they don't know the sins that are going on in that congregation. Let me just stop here for a moment. We are a people that are more than sinners. We've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so because of his redemption, we ought to have a greater understanding of the things that goes in, not only to uh, the world, but in our witness. Look what else it says. And it says, again, he was a faithful martyr even in the seed of Satan. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold to the doctrine of Balaam. What is the doctrine of Balaam? If I go back in the Old Testament and we see how that the Jews had made their trek in the wilderness, we remember how that Balaam was called upon to come in and curse the Jews. But he could not do it. He said, I can only do what God gives me to do. So whenever the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he began to have that relationship with God, God would open up his understanding and he would literally praise and give thanks to God for the good which he alone could give. But listen to me. At the end of those three times that he praised God for Israel, then came the other part where this is really gives us an insight. He taught he taught Balak how to lay a stumbling block in front of the Jewish men. And the way that he did it is he caused them to have the different kind of feasts to their gods, to have orgies with their particular people. I remember listening, I was listening to a preacher uh, on, on the way to church this morning. And as I was listening to that preacher, here's what he had to say. Many times we think of ourselves as being better than everybody else. We have a much better car, we have much better finances, or have everything else. And we even get to a place that depending on the color of somebody's skin, we might think about everything else. He brought up this point, and he said, how many of us ever heard that during the Vietnam War, instead of that being called that we are killing the Vietnamese, we're killing the gooks? <coughs> have you ever wondered why we call them gooks? Because as long as we're calling them names, we're not seeing them as people. We never called them Native Americans or, or indigenous peoples. We called them American Indians, ignorant, savages. 
so that we could kill them and feel good about killing them. But it wasn't until we sat down and started talking to these people that we realized how wrong we were. David Brainerd, who was a great missionary back in the days of Jonathan Edwards, was the first to reach out into the Ohio Valley. And when he came into the Ohio Valley and spreading the gospel, he had to learn the language of the people, first of all. And then he saw all this black magic and everything. But instead of calling them savages and literally making himself something that he wasn't, he became more understanding of their ways and led many believers to Christ. Many Indians. By the way, did you know the most influential people upon the Cherokee tribes was the Baptist. What's happened? We no longer preach the gospel like we should, and it's caused us a great amount of a great amount of injustice. And so, whenever we see a stumbling block, and I pray that I'm not that stumbling block. And you know, do you understand this? If if I go into a workplace and I begin to use my colorful language as other people use it, then the language that I spouse out of this mouth, other people are going to say, and you call yourself a Christian? People need to see me for who I am, not what I think they ought to see. I need to be, I remember this, uh, we have a young man that we work with, and, and he's going to try to be here today. But one of the things that he said to me, he goes, man, the most difficult thing I have is I still want to curse. And I look at this, I'm going, I could use curse words, but what is people getting out of the curse words that I'm, I'm giving out of my lips? Am I being a stumbling block? Do people see me as a person that believes in Christ and I'm going to live for Christ? Or do they see me as a stumbling block? Look what else it says. Not only do we have the, the remedies of, of, uh, that we see with Balak, but we also have this statement, and this one was amazing to me. It says, And to eat things sacrifice unto idols, and to commit fornication. It was in this book, and I, and I didn't write it down the exact page, but I, I love what Jack MacArthur had to say in this. He said, Do you realize that people want the same rights of marriage and he said even though they don't have the same right to marry and here's what he meant by that he said as in the days of Noah he said did you ever think about in the days of Noah that the reason that they were marrying and giving in marriage was because we made it too easy for them to separate he said not only that but think about this men were now saying uh, that I, I'm going to become homosexual one of the most devastating things that ever happened in my life was a man by the name of Ray Boltz, and who, who had sung many songs, giving praise to God. Watch the Lamb was one of the songs that he sang. My Anchor Holds is another song that he would sing. And one of the things that he wrote down in, in that particular message was suddenly Ray Boltz announced that he was a homosexual and he was going to go after the homosexual life. A Christian! And now he's announcing that he's homosexual. And my world almost became flattened because this man, who seemingly was strong and capable in the things of God, was now declaring that he was homosexual. What damage could he have possibly done at that moment? Let me tell you something, folks. God can forgive, but we better be careful of what we do because we will create a damage that other people cannot see. And I believe that this Pergamon is a reflection of what we're seeing today. 
The reality is, is that he also pointed in the Nicolaitans, that doctrine of Nicolaitans. Do you realize that that means conquering the people? Nico means to conquer. Nicolaitan means the people. Now, was there a real person by the name of, the Nic of Nicolaitan? I can't find any evidence of that person, but the doctrine behind it is that because of who he says he is, or because of what they believe, they begin to follow after very carefully. And notice that they came in, and instead of it being church rule, it became one person that had their control over everyone that is there. Turn with me, if you will, to 3rd John. The third letter of John that was written, I had this question that was asked me the other day, who was this writing to? And I said, I believe that this was to the Jerusalem church, both 2nd John and 3rd John as well. And the reason is, is that, notice again, it says that, and go down to verse 9, and it says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loved, loved who had the preeminence among them, received us not. Now, can you imagine someone thinking that they have enough authority, enough strength, that here, one of the founding fathers of the church in Jerusalem, he said, you're not welcome here. Can you imagine Brother Bob Patton? We all know that Brother Bob is still living. Praise God he's still alive. And he did an awful lot. We got an article up st up upstairs, and I, I made a copy of it to show everybody about the building that he, he helped prepare in this place. And I've had a chance to talk with Brother Bob, and from time to time we'll make a phone call. But can you imagine someone standing up saying, we're not happy. The thing is, that's exactly what Diotrephes was saying. He goes, it goes against everything I hold to and everything I believe, therefore he's not going to come. But watch this going down. Verse 12. Demetrius hath a good report of all men. So are we a Diotrephes or are we a Demetrius? That's the way we ought to look at it. And he has a good report and of the truth itself, yea, and we also bear record, and you know that our record is true. I have many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write thee, but I trust. I shall shortly see thee. Man, can you imagine? Here is John the Beloved, the quiet little John, that one wonderful man of God, and suddenly he goes, when I come, I'm bringing a sword. I'm going to bring the whip. I'm going, to I'm going to whip you back into shape. Every church needs to understand we need to be brought back into shape when it comes to the things of God. And so the reality is, is that everything that we see in this should be something that we would understand what God has for us, including standing up against the Nicolaitans. And I want you to see this. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. This was in the book. And I thought this was so good. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I'm going to go down to verse 14. This was the biggest area and the biggest confusion that began to happen. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 down to verse 14. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? Now stop there just for a moment. One of the biggest challenges for our young people today is finding someone of like faith and practice to be married to. 
That's a big challenge. It's a challenge because a lot of people don't understand the responsibility of it. A lot of people don't understand the challenge that goes with it or anything else. But also look what it says in verse 15. And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Do you realize that when you are married to an unbeliever, how can they possibly understand? Now, we're blessed. Please understand this. I know that we've had members that they married unbelievers and God saw fit to save an individual you know, that was lost with them. More times than not, they drag the individual down more than lift them up. And so I try to tell people, please be faithful unto God. And if you're a believer, pray for your wife if she's lost. If you're a wife and you're a believer, then pray for your husband if he is lost. God can bring about the truth. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? I remember this, is that one time when I was, I was, we had the mission work up in Jackson. And on this side of, of the little auditorium that we had, there was one lady and she was listening. And at the end of the service, she was so intent, so blessed when listening, that she came forward and she said, I want to be saved. It, it was just a marvelous, marvelous service. And the lady was saved and afterwards she said, would you come and witness to my husband? And when I came in to see her husband, there was all forms of idols that were around the house. You know, had the, uh, the wood gravings of idols and things like that. That one was supposed to be Jesus. That's an angel, this, that, and the other. And, and you know what? If people want to have those in their houses, that's fine. That, that's neither here nor there. But she said, what does the Bible say about idols? She asked me that question. And I took her over and I showed her how that in the book of Exodus it says, don't have any graven images. And she wanted to get rid of them, but her husband immediately marked me as a heretic. And pretty soon he came to me and he goes, you're not the only church in town. I'll take my wife elsewhere. And as a deceiver, he crept into her and convinced her that if she would stop coming to our, the little mission, he would take her to church elsewhere, and she began to go to church with him. And soon, he convinced her there were other things that were more important than going to church. Let me tell you something. The stumbling block of marriage can affect us. How much I wish that woman had returned back to the mission work, she didn't do it. But that's okay. God knows everyone that's his. Reality is, we're going to finish up here. In history, and look at point C, in history there are many uh, which allow us to see things happening. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 3. And I want you to see one of the things that, that comes into, into place here. In 2 Samuel chapter 3. <clears throat> One of the things that a lot of times would happen, and this carried over uh, from pagan beliefs and pagan practices, we find that, that there was a, a reality of marriage and marriage uh, agreements. Remember this is that when uh, Saul was the, the king, he made an agreement with David that you can have my daughter in marriage if you bring me 104 skins of the, of the Philistines. He brought back 200. And so Saul gave him, not the oldest daughter, but he gave him Michael. 
And he was very much thankful that he was given Michael because she was very beautiful and they really did love each other. But it was at that time that David had also, when he had to flee from that particular area, that Saul gave his gave Michael over to another man. Let's go down and see this. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, let's go down to verse 13. And he said, Well, if I make a league with thee, but for one thing I require thee, that is, thou shalt not see my face, except thou first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, to see my face. Here's the reason why. At that moment, Saul's daughter Michael was given to somebody else. Look what it says in verse 14. And David sent message to Isbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Deliver me my wife Michael, which I espoused to me for one hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Isbosheth sent and took her from her husband. How many of us have ever seen that in Scripture before? Even from Pathiel, the son of Lanish. And her husband went with her, weeping behind her, to Bahurim. In other words, he was really in love with Michael. But the reality is, as David said, you restore what is mine. Now, I bring that up with also what we're about ready to see here with Milan Bridge. There are so many items. How many of you have ever heard of Milan Bridge before? This occurred around 315 A.D., maybe 325 A.D. Uh, this was when Constantine was battling for power, you know, around the Greek area, which is now Istanbul, uh, one of those areas. Later on, we found Constantinople was named for him. And he was losing badly. Now, get this, and this is what I want us to see. We cannot become Christians just because we announce it. Now, I want, and let me say it again. We are not really going to become believers in Christ just because we announce it. We become believers in Christ when faith has entered into us and we know truly that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and that begins it all. So at Lila Bridge, we find that Constantine said, I saw an image in the sky. And that is one of the images that I show you, and I want you to remember this. And underneath is the insignia that says, with this sign conquer. And it's in Latin. With this sign conquer. Well, after that, we begin to see exactly what that looked like. If you want the next slide, Brother Joe. And I want you to see what, we, what we're looking at. This was an imprint of the coin that came up. So if you look on the... If you look over to the left-hand side, you see an image of Constantine. And you also see that little, that little rosette on the back. And in the little rosette, if you look up into the flag that the, that the person is holding, there's the flaming sword. Look at this. It's not on the flaming cross. This is the flaming cross. It's not what we think of. In other words, this became the symbol for all Catholicism, and that's where I want to end off with you today. So when Constantine looked at it, by the way, Constantine never became a believer, a true believer in Christ. Yes, he did now call himself a Christian, but he refused baptism. 
He refused everything that was in the order, but what he said is because of this, that's the emblem I saw, that flaming cross. In other words, a circular flame around the cross. And by the way, we're going to examine that a little bit more each time that we come together, and we're going to see what that's all about. All right, it's now time for us to get ready for our next service, so let's go ahead and close. Father, again, thank you for your blessings. Now lead and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we'll close off from here.